0: Welcome to Conversations of the Quantum Age. I'm Marlene Caldas, bringing you conversations with the foremost writers and metaphysicians of our time. From San Francisco, our program is devoted to bringing you life-enhancing information on subjects of health and spirituality, science and its connection to our metaphysical universe. For information on our guests, events, or books discussed on our show, for questions or comments, call us anytime at 1-800-555-707. That's 1-800-555-7070. My guest today is Dr. Candice Pert, an internationally renowned scientist who has proved through rigorous research and testing why alternative therapies work. She's a research professor in the Department of Physiology and Biophysics in the Georgetown University Medical Center in Washington, D.C. And today we are talking about her work and her new book, Molecules of Emotion, Why You Feel the Way You Feel. Thank you for joining me in the studio today, Candace.
1: Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here.
0: <laughs> it is a, an exciting experience to be out there talking about the joy of your own personal conversation.
1: No, it's an exciting experience to be in San Francisco, basically. Ah, the, yeah, the, I have to
0: agree. <laughs> you know, this is an immense study that you've been in. As I began to read your book, first of all, I want to tell our audience that one of the most remarkable things about Candace is that uh, she has done a very long study of peptides, which are the proteins that orchestrate the activities of every cell and organ and system in the body. And in addition, she is well known for her part in the 1970s Seventy-two discovery of the brain's opiate receptor. And uh, I wanted to ask, you know, what was, it was very important, this discovery, but why was it important to find
1: the opiate receptor? I think, well, the importance was a couple of things. I mean, it was really the first uh, receptor for something outside of the body to be discovered. So the actual technique that was used um you, led to the ability to find many other receptors for many other drugs and neurotransmitters so, and to screen for new drugs. So I think its importance was, as a technique, it was a breakthrough technique. And then, of course, the other importance was that the discovery of the opiate receptor prompted uh, the scientists to say, well, why, why would God give us an opiate receptor so that we could get high from heroin? And it kind of stimulated the discovery of... What's now called the endorphins, the endogenous morphine like substances, so that I think the opiate receptor discovery really kicked that off and then kicked off this whole era of appreciating the importance of peptides since the brains own morphine turned out to be a peptide that focused attention on other peptides, and now we have a hundred to two hundred. Mm-hmm. I call them informational substances. Right. So the
0: peptides are informational substances. Now, you were a- actually able to label them. There were neuropeptides,
1: there were immunopeptides. Yes, and, and actually uh, part of the informational substances are classical hormones, estrogen, testosterone, uh, testosterone. They're not peptides in their chemistry. They're steroids, but it's the same idea. All of these substances... Uh, act at receptors on the surfaces of cells and, as you really succinctly put it, mm-hmm. mediate the communication with the whole the integrity mm-hmm. of the body-mind, how it all kind of stays together.
0: So there was something that you had talked about called the grind and bind.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and later the dip and slip. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> Things coming together.
1: Yeah, well, the grind and bind is uh, was just sort of a, a humorous, Um, summary of the method and basically grind we grind up the tissue the brain in the beginning of course Many of these receptors are in the body, grind up the tissue, and then bind. This was
0: quite an image,
1: thinking about all these <laughs> brains being made into milkshakes. And,
0: you know, this is a fascinating story. The the uh, vignettes throughout the book as to how all of this study comes about was very, very interesting. This is what most people don't know anything about that goes
1: on in a research laboratory. Right. Well, I was trying to give people a flavor, mm-hmm. not just some dull... It's, it's not a textbook on any level, right. Molecules of Emotion. It's a story. It's, uh, it's it's kind of my story. It has a strong narrative since I was privileged to be a part of many of these discoveries and see them unfolding. And, you know, it has my friends and what we did and how things happened and try to uh, reveal uh, what scientists really do and how do we know something is true and why are we so skeptical you know what what is proof and give people a flavor of right. how it's going in the lab
0: right now was it when you were when you had first done the, the work on the discovery of the opium receptor, were they looking for a cure for heroin addiction?
1: Yes, as a matter of fact that was the i mean that was the rationale of uh, why this would be useful There was some in fact the first press conference i There's a vignette in the book. All these reporters showed up expecting that we were announcing the cure for heroin addiction. (laughs) And I thought it was a bit of a hype um, because, you know, I believe there's economic and psychosocial causes to that disease, and you're not going to find that with a pill. (laughs) Mm -hmm. A little bit of self-medication there. Yeah. So
0: after, you know, now this book really seems to fall into two parts, the way I saw it you had the establishing, you know, how you got where you got in the science part and all of the earthly foibles and personalities and the conflicts. And you have the good guys. You have the bad guys. (laughs) You have the the male versus female, you know, issues that went on in science. And uh, these were all very, very interesting. And just quite inside, I, I had no idea that it was such a tough place to slug it out. And you're one of the few women in that area at the time i mean you began your research early 70s maybe even before when did you graduate Uh,
1: from college 70 yeah i started there in 1970 uh uh-huh at johns hopkins university and um yeah well it hasn't uh, feminine pioneer in science well um yes but um i mean there's there's of course been some great women scientists who i talk about in the uh, Books such as um, Franklin, who... Um, she came long before you, helen Long before me. Yes. She was a science nun. I talk about science nuns. Mm-hmm. Women are the science nuns. Um, and Rosalind Franklin really made critical discoveries to the structure of DNA, but mm-hmm. she got sort of thrown out and joked about in The Double Helix, which was Watson and Crick's account of this discovery. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned that. But yeah, it's yeah, I guess I slugged it out, I survived. But uh, I survived. I talk about my transformation. I now, I believe really strongly that um, although I was able to quote unquote succeed in that scrappy kind of model where it's all very competitive, I really believe with my heart <laughs> that the best place to come from is wanting to cure diseases and wanting to come from compassion for right. human beings and sharing information and working together, right. um, and this is the way to go. And maybe that's more of a quote feminine model. It doesn't well, it was very beautifully
0: illustrated uh, it, during the part of the book where you talked about your father having cancer.
1: Was it small cell? Yes, small cell carcinoma of the lung. One of the a form of cancer which a hundred percent of the time you have to be a heavy smoker mm-hmm. to get it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, was one, he. Oh, yeah, two packs of (laughs) camels a day all his life, all his life. And, of course, when he died, um, found a half-smoked pack of cigarettes in the drawer when I went to get his effects.
0: So what I thought was interesting about that was your race in in the laboratory to try to find a cure for this, to try to find out how it works so that you can... Uh, do something that would make a difference, and beyond the issue of your own personal experience with your father, wanting to share this information with the world so that people who need cures and need to have access to it quickly would get it, and what you bumped up against.
1: Yes. (laughs) That was the first taste of realizing, you know, I'm Pretty naive I was, at least. <laughs> this is a good thing. Yes, you know, and <laughs> I just thought, you know, scientists, you find information, it goes out there, drugs get invented, people get to use them. But how idealistic! Um, I deal this, <laughs> it was just kind of naive. There's just there is so much uh, economic mm-hmm. interest in human frailty and uh, politics that hold things. I mean, the turf battling. Um, you know, the National Institutes of Health which are in Bethesda, Maryland, I know they seem... And,
0: and you were involved with the National Institutes of Health for how many years? Oh, I
1: worked there for more than 13 years. Right. I was a section chief and uh, ran a laboratory um, and did most of my research there. Um, its um, I know it seems far away. When you're out here in the Bay, people say, ah. <laughs> but, you know, your tax dollars are supporting that research. And the way it's structured... Um, it's kind of a separate institute for each disease. And uh, people really whole it continues today. It's really, it's very sad. So that, um, take multiple sclerosis. There's overwhelming new data that there's a virus, two different viruses involved. Mm-hmm. And what happens at the turf level, um, the people who are in charge of the disease today and own the disease are neurologists, and they worry that, if the disease gets to be recognized as a viral disease, then Tony Fauci and the Infectious Disease Institute will take a, away a piece of it. That turf thing continues mm-hmm. to the detriment of of finding cures for diseases.
0: Mm. About the glory of the ego, a little bit, the kind of getting in the of way, the way of people people who are paying the taxes or right. well, it's the, know, the people glory funding of funding
1: the, the research. The glory of the ego and the reality of the. What people will do to get the resources in their, um, into it, you know, the way it's all structured.
0: And so let's move on to the more exciting part. Uh huh. Uh-huh. That being, at one point in the book, he said, I've discovered that God is a neuropeptide.
1: Uh huh. <laughs> Did I really say that? <laughs> I loved it. It's a very big idea. Right. Well, I think it's, it's a bit of a metaphor. Um, Indeed it is. It's a bit of a metaphor. I guess another aspect of molecules of emotion is it's really my theory of um, the emotions, Mm -hmm. how they really tie the mind and body together. They are the twine Mm -hmm. that puts it all together. So what's fascinating about the emotions is that, sure, I'm talking about the physical manifestation of the emotions in the body in the form of these peptides and receptors that connect the immune system and the brain and the gut and the skin but the other aspect of the emotions is that they're in they're in the spiritual realm emotions are in the spiritual realm so the neuropeptides they're a key biochemical of the emotions so when i say god is a neuro, neuropeptide i think i'm just kind of dazzled by the the beauty the unity of life how um, we have the same molecules that we have in our minds for mediating pain and pleasure. They're in they're in yeast. They're in one celled organism. They're in simple animals and even some plants. Um, the emotions are. That's kind right. Of the you primal. talked about
0: the hagfish, the, the lowest vertebrate <laughs> of hideously all. Hideously ugly, right? <laughs> hideously <laughs> ugly, uh-huh. uh, and and how even it has. Oh, peer Why couldn't you Thank really you read, read this receptors. book? This is <laughs> uh, for those of you who are just joining us. You're listening to Conversations of the Quantum Age. I'm Marlene Caldas, and I'm talking today to Dr. Candace Pert. Uh, she is a research professor in the Department of Physiology and Biophysics, and that's at the Georgetown University Medical Center in Washington, D.C. She's done an immense amount of work. She has been uh, featured in Bill Moyers book and the PBS series Healing and the Mind, and uh, she is uh, partly responsible for the uh, 1972 discovery, or she worked and had a big part in the discovery of the opium receptor, so we're really happy to have her with us today. Um, You know, it was interesting that uh, at one point when you began to bring the idea of emotion into your study you really pushed up against some resistance
1: from the scientific community what do you think that is well it's so interesting we live in a everybody's making fun of uh the queen of england these days but our culture is a relatively emotionally repressed culture it is an anglican culture compared to others so there's Uh, Particularly in mainstream medicine or conventional medicine, there is they
0: strive to be dispassionate on some level. Exactly,
1: it's like this is um, there's a denial of the role of emotions in disease, and the corollary of my research is that there is no disease that doesn't have an important psychosomatic component. I mean, everything does. So there is the denial. My a relative called me and was concerned that they were sending her in for. CAT scans and brain scans. She had horrible headaches. It was actually a friend of a relative. And I said, well, what what else is going on in your life? No one had asked her this, mm. these severe headaches. Uh, and she said, well, I have two children under the age of three, and my secretary just quit. I have a full-time job, and I just found out my husband is having an affair. This gives me <laughs> a headache just thinking about <laughs> it. Right. And, and I mean, she had scan after scan, but nobody had the time. Her neurologist that she was up to I had never said, well, what's on your mind? Now, family practitioners, are, mm-hmm. they have a little more attention to this, but um, it's upsetting. I mean, we're in the wrong paradigm. As long right. as medicine is right. in denial about the root cause of illness, mm-hmm. um, we're going to still have people. And so the strength here is being able to document, to document
0: your theory that emotions play a big part in our healing. When I was talking to Louis Mel Madrona, who wrote Coyote Medicine, what I could see is that his his purpose now is to get these grants and document the uh, effects of indigenous healing. And one of the things I see that really sticks out in this book and others that I've read is that in our third-dimensional reality, this proof is required. It's almost as if in order to open our minds, in order for for the scientific community to open its mind or medicine to open its mind further, there has to be that, that documented proof. And I think what's really exciting is that we've actually come to an age where our technology is advancing quickly enough for us to do just that and to prove that, yep, there it is. There's the opiate receptor. There's that neuropeptide, all of these mind body spirit conversations that we're now about, that we're having now, and we will be having uh, in the next few years as we turn into the new century. I think we'll really open up. Uh, a whole possibility for what, you know, you talk about how the emotions and how alternative forms of therapies and medicines can be available to all of us, because not all of us are going to respond to solely allopathic medicine or solely indigenous
1: medicine or solely mm. uh, mindful meditation, whatever it is, you know. Plus, most of what we go to the doctor for, someone's estimated that perhaps 70% of the visits... Um, there's no help for them really um, they're really things that people are just not feeling well and they're not uh,
0: feeling well and they don't really get to tell their story yes. about why it is they're not feeling well so it's not really a patient-centered diagnosis as much as it's a formula that has become so linear uh,
1: It's all symptomatic, and and you can't get any help. Right, which is one thing about the complementary therapist, the key thing. Mm -hmm. They seem to have the time. They seem to have the time to listen to you, talk to you, and... um you know, uh, their therapies, uh, probably a big part is that they're paying attention to you and your story, as you put it, which is kind of recorded in every cell of your body. Right.
0: Now, in addition to uh, having worked at the opiate receptor and then been at the uh, National Institutes of Health, you also did some work with the AIDS virus.
1: Yes. And HIV. (laughs) How did that happen? It was one of the most astounding cosmic things that just it still astounds me i mean it's been 10 years and um how i got into it really seems uh, miraculous um basically we our lab uh, had the idea that there's really no receptors that aren't in the brain that are in the sorry there are no receptors uh in the brain that are not also in the immune system, and vice versa. So we had been mapping various immune cell receptors, peptide receptors for immune substances, and finding them in the brain. And then somebody called up and said, do you realize that that T4 that you've been looking at in brain is the is the receptor that the HIV uses to enter and infect cells? So suddenly we were AIDS researchers, and I felt this enormous... Well, I had this enormous... Uh, compassion and love and interest for the arts and in my mind the gay men in the arts and the disease was just taking this horrible toll so I got very excited about could I make a contribution to the disease and um, got invited to a meeting on Maui and something very weird happened there. Did you read about that? You heard an inner voice that said, you should do this. Yes. <laughs> yes.
0: You were presenting a new therapy for AIDS or something, well, and it, you heard a real strong inner voice. What was that
1: about? Right. Well, for me, it was really about the hike up the volcano in Maui. I mean, will, I cannot separate <laughs> the two. Because Haleakala is a very powerful place. Yes. And, um I was with Michael, my new fiancé, and uh, he told me it was only 4 miles and 4,000 feet to hike up, but it was really 8 miles and 4,000 feet, and uh, we hiked to the top. It was all very moving, and then arrived uh, two days later at the meeting, and I was only giving the research to say that the receptor was there. In the brain and in the immune system. And then I found myself saying, I thought of it spontaneously while I was at the podium and said, well, if we could find which peptide normally fits this receptor, we might have a non-toxic therapy for AIDS. And then I heard this very loud voice say, you should do this. I was like, whoa. Go find it. Yeah. And so I just... It it was like a billion to one shot, but I called the lab the next morning and got everybody on an approach. We actually used a computer to figure out a peptide sequence shared by the HIV virus Mm -hmm. and uh, other peptides, et cetera. But uh, this, you know, although I didn't tell (laughs) the virologist how we came to the structure, we really ran up against a lot of um, resistance. Mm-hmm.
0: As you would when doing anything new and trying to break paradigms. You really emerge in your book uh, in a very balanced way. <laughs> this is one of the things I really enjoyed. I so admire the ability to think sequentially, to mount a, a plan and to follow it and to to get to a solution and and to behave sequentially and to to do the grunt work you know the everyday farmer type of work then then there's the other part of you that's extremely innovative and intuitive and was able to marry those two parts of yourself in your work which which was really remarkable when when I'm reading you know the incredible uh, discoveries that you've made in the work that you've done is not only third dimensional in nature But it also is extremely expansive, and it strikes me as if you have... As a scientist, you are also a healer, and that Mm -hmm. it it, it seemed to be your highest aim and aspiration, your intention was to contribute to mankind in some positive and impactful way. I wanted to ask you, uh, there was a, I can't remember the article, and so I can't cite it, but I was very interested in the fact that, or maybe, let me rephrase that, can drug abuse, like heroin addiction, uh, freebasing, or cocaine, affect the body's natural ability to produce endorphins?
1: Yes, of course. That's the, This is the thing with, quote, drugs of abuse, which should be included, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, prescription drugs can be in this category. Of course, yes, any well. drug that we take from the outside binds to receptors, which are mm-hmm. there, uh, as some part of the psychosynaptic network. And uh, it's been shown that when you bombard a receptor with an external drug, changes happen in that receptor and in the body's ability to make that drug. So the endorphins pretty well studied. Um, the en- The receptors shrink a little bit, but the key thing is that your ability to make endorphins starts to decline it 's arrested it 's arrested I, I thought this was very, very important
0: to note that when Jerry Garcia died from uh, you know from being in the hospital or the cardiac arrest, whatever he had, one of the things that ha- occurred in his life was he had heroin addiction. And I, I felt that there was an opportunity that was missed to educate the public, all people who are even prone to self-medicating, to understand that if you do this, not only are you going to deal with all the stuff that happens with heroin and addiction, but you can turn off your natural endorphin-making property for all times. And that's why, no matter how many times he kicked the habit, he was never happy. He had money. He had music. He had friends. He had people that followed him all around the world, and yet he was not happy. He did not have that natural uh, morphine-like substance uh, automatically happening within his body because he had turned it off. And I thought that we had missed a great opportunity to educate
1: our young people. That's an interesting point. Yeah, I talked in the book about... I went to the Baltimore City Jail a few times and talked to the women, and they were astounded to hear about this. It's actually helpful for people to know why... Heroin gives them the high and how they can have that high themselves
0: mm-hmm. for free.
1: Uh, Absolutely. Other mechanisms, exercise, other ways to bliss. And, yeah, I, I agree with you. The educational aspect um, can help people mm-hmm. to, uh, to manage or avoid the habit. And, and, by the way, the animal studies show, it's amazing. It, it can be years later, and you, you are forever changed by... Uh, An addiction, although there's always room for recovery. Yes, yes.
0: Well, I want to thank you for joining me in the studio today. It was wonderful talking to you. Uh, For those of you who have... Just tuned in. We are talking to Candace Pert, uh, Dr. Candace Pert, and we are talking about her new book, Molecules of Emotion. It's published by Scribner. And uh, I want to thank you for coming today. This is a a remarkable book. It, It just fills you with an immense amount of information so that you can be in charge of your ship, your body. You can make these decisions for yourself and you can use your emotions and your feelings to improve your health, among other things. Candace Pert illustrates her book uh molecules of emotion, the immense amounts of various molecules and transmitters and peptides all moving throughout the organism of the human body. They're all rushing to sites where injuries and insults have occurred, and they're all working together to balance the organism with the unity we humans simply dream of, not a molecule of mean-spirited disagreement among them. (laughs) If that level of cooperation naturally resides within us molecularly, then the possibility for such balance in our external condition, that of living together on Earth in a state of harmony, is more within our reach than we ever thought possible. And that has to lead to a more flourishing lifestyle for us all. For Conversations of the Quantum Age, I'm Marlene Caldus.
1: Conversations of the Quantum Age is produced by Marlene Caldas, clairvoyant metaphysician, business and personal advisor, and creator of the Intention Map method of personal success. Known worldwide for her remarkable accuracy, Marlene has assisted thousands of individuals in their journey towards prosperity and self discovery. Conversations is underwritten by Tarot by Telephone, Marlene's personal consulting service. To schedule a private session with her by phone, call toll free 1 800 555 7070. That's one 800 7070